going to continue our study of judges today. Um, this past couple weeks uh, have been kind of a crazy couple weeks. I mean, ten years ago, I never would have seen a week like the last couple weeks. Uh, most of you know what's happened in, in Houston. Anybody not know what's happened in Houston? Okay, in Houston, the mayor subpoenaed all the uh, sermons of local pastors, which is perfectly fine because sermons are one of those things. We want people who don't believe to hear it. But at the same time, to be politically bullied into turning over sermons is an indication of of a much, much bigger problem, something we would call a culture war. A culture war is when you have two diametrically opposed aspects or or, or components of a society that are going to war with one another. And there is a major, major culture war going on in our country right now between Christians and non-Christians. You'd have to be a hermit. I mean, you'd have to live in complete isolation up in the hills or something like that to not realize that our, uh, our country is experiencing religious tension that's unrivaled in its 200-plus year history as the religious and civil liberties of Christians are being stripped away faster than you can say religious freedom by politicians who have aligned themselves with enemies of Christianity who are intent on bullying us into submission. The question is, how do we respond? How do we deal with this type of treatment? That's one of the questions that I hope to address today as we continue our study with the 11th chapter of Judges. Um, In the early 90s, Saturday Night Live used to have this hilarious uh, little skit segment that they would do on their show called Deep Thoughts. Uh, it was just like a little clip that they'd roll uh, maybe once or twice per episode as they were getting ready to cut off to break. Uh, but there was a book that was published with some of these deep thoughts. And in the book, one of the pieces of sage advice and deep thinking is this, quote, There used to be this bully who would demand my lunch money every day. Since I was smaller, I would give it to him. Then I decided to fight back. I started taking karate lessons, but then the karate lesson guy said I had to start paying him five bucks a lesson, so I went back to paying the bully, <laughs> end quote. The fact is, I mean, that's, that's a very tactful way to, to make a, a humorous joke about bullies, but the truth is there's not really a lot that's, that's funny about bullies, but we've all come across them at one point or another in our lives. When I think of, of bullies, I think of a kid I used to know uh, in elementary school all the way through, through high school, and man, this guy was just mean. He was, he was as mean as, as any kid I've ever met. Unlike Most bullies, however, this guy wouldn't back down from a fight. You could get four or five guys against him, and he wouldn't back down. He he didn't know how to back down from a fight. And it wasn't until we got into high school, and I I, uh, happened to be in kind of a rough crowd myself, that I kind of got to know this guy a little bit. He and I sort of became friends, and I learned that as a child, his father used to beat him up regularly. I mean, weekly. And when I learned that, I thought, no wonder this guy is just so mean. 
So despite the fact that he was a mean kid, you know, I, I felt like I, I kind of understood him. I, I kind of, un it made sense to me why he would be the way that he was. I understood why he was so mean. I understood why he liked to beat up other kids. I understood why he liked to hurt people. I understood why, in his mind, he didn't care if he got hurt. It was to the death. I understood why he wouldn't let anybody get really close to him. Today we're going to be introduced to a mean character. A really mean character. Someone who might have been considered something of a bully, but as we'll see, his mean-spiritedness probably has a great deal to do with the way that he was treated, not only by his father, not only by his own family, his whole family, but by his whole community. His name is Jephthah. Literally translated, his name means whom or what God sets free. He's the latest in a long line of judges, people who are raised up by God to free God's people. And right now, it's, it's kind of ironic that his name would mean uh, whom or what God sets free, because right now Israel needs to be set free. As the Ammonites, who are being led by their own bully of a worldly leader, are about to make a military move against Israel. Now Israel, just to give us a little, little uh, backdrop, what has led up to this point, Israel has turned their hearts away from God to serve the Baals, to serve the Ashtaroth, those are the gods of the land, but they also started worshipping the foreign gods of the nations surrounding them, until finally, 18 years later, they grew tired of being oppressed by these people whose gods these were, uh, the gods that they'd been worshipping, and so after 18 years, they cried out to God, but only as kind of a last-ditch attempt to manipulate God into serving them. And so therefore, God refused to step in and save them. But finally, they, they showed some sincere repentance, uh, some sincere brokenness over their sins, and they acted on that, and so God agreed to save them. But who was God going to raise up? to lead the charge against the Ammonites, because as the Ammonites have a call to battle, there's nobody yet. And this is where Jephthah enters the story. His introduction is as harsh as any introduction of anybody in the entire Bible. We read this in Judges chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. So we learned in the previous chapter, that Gilead is the place where the Ammonites have been camping out, where they're having their call to battle, their call to arms, uh, to, to wage war against the Israelites, right? So out of Gilead comes this man named Jephthah. And the first thing that the author has to say about him is something awesome. This guy is a mighty warrior. Starting at a young age, he had a lot of experience on the battlefield. And it's mentioned as something of a, of a noble and noteworthy, positive aspect of his life. But immediately, the author follows that with a but. As if what's to come is going to negate everything that I've already said that's positive about this guy. You know, if somebody says, you know that guy, Toby, he's a nice guy, but... You know, at that point, I go, la, 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 I don't want to hear it, because I know that whatever you said, it's going to negate the fact that you think I'm a nice guy. He was a mighty warrior, but he's the son of a prostitute. Now, why do you think God would raise up the son of a prostitute, specifically this type of person? He could, have, he could raise up anybody. 
Why would he raise up the son of a prostitute? Now, while I confess that, you know, maybe it's a little bit of speculation on my part, I believe that God would regularly raise up broken, destitute people for service because they were a particularly unique and maybe spiritually accurate reflection of the nation as a whole. Israel's been referred to as a prostitute before. And they were a prostitute in that they were continually selling themselves out. They were continually prostituting themselves to whatever appealed to them, to whatever God would give them what they wanted, to whatever would give them the greatest benefit. And I believe that it's because Israel has been a spiritual harlot. They've been a a spiritual prostitute that God raises up a man who literally came from a prostitute. It's a physical reality that God uses to reveal a spiritual reality. It's a physical picture that's a reflection of the spiritual picture, the same type of thing that God did with Hosea in having him marry a prostitute, Uh, the same things that he would do with Ezekiel, having Ezekiel do all kinds of crazy stuff to reflect, to give a physical picture of what the spiritual condition of Israel was. So Jephthah's life story from the get-go is a spiritual reflection of the physical nation. So Jephthah's mother was a prostitute. And his father is none other than Gilead himself. Hmm, we're in the region of Gilead. This is the man after whom the entire region is named. This is a powerful, influential, wealthy man. This is a leader. This is a scandal that would rival the most disgusting scandals that we could imagine. It, it would put the, the, the scandal between President Clinton and, and Monica Lewinsky to shame. But just to give credit where it's due, Gilead did try to do the right thing. He did try to make the best of the situation. He accepted responsibility for what had happened, and he raised Jephthah as his own son in his home. Let's continue to verse 2. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said, to the, and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So at a fairly young age, his half-brothers got together and conspired to gang up on him and to drive him away from their fathers, from Gilead's home, because they didn't want him to get a piece of his father's inheritance. And there's no record, not even a word, of Gilead himself coming to his rescue. There's not a word of the leaders of the region of Gilead coming to his rescue. There's not a word of anybody in the whole land sticking up for him. Nobody came to his rescue. And so needless to say, this illegitimate son was raised in an extremely dysfunctional environment, an extremely dysfunctional household. They were all just ready to forget about this illegitimate child. But God had his hand on Jephthah from the beginning, and God would not forget or abandon him. Let's continue in verse 3. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. 
And worthless men collected around Jephthah and went out with him. See, to an extent, we're we're all a product of the environment that we come from. Jephthah has been forced to flee, to to run for his life from his home, from his town, and find someplace else to live. And so he finds a group of misfits and criminals and outlaws out in the wilderness. And these guys, these hoodlums, they were more than happy to welcome him in, to have him come and dwell with them. But as he joins their ranks, he quickly works his way to the very top. Because he's not the one gathering around them. What we read here is that they're the ones collecting around him. He probably had to fight his way in. And they saw that this guy was not somebody to be messed with. He had some anger issues. And he would take it out on your face if you got on his way. So he's become something of a crime boss. He's like a a crime boss. He's like a a mafia, you know, Don or whatever they're called. I don't know. I'm, I'm from Vegas. I don't know anything about the mafia. He's an illegitimate son. That's all I know. He's, he's an illegitimate son, somebody who would have been seen by his father, somebody who was seen by his brothers, somebody who was probably seen by the whole land as an accident, who became an outcast, who became a mob boss, a criminal from a very young age. And so what the author here has done is they've said, okay, Jephthah's coming into the, to the story. Let me give you a little history on this guy. This is who this guy is. So now that the author's given us some background information on Jephthah, we're going to learn about how he was raised up to judge Israel. Verses 4 to 7. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the leaders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? There's a good chance that some of these leaders of Gilead were his brothers, his half-brothers, the people that drove him out. Everybody to an extent played, or everybody in Gilead to an extent played a role in driving him out because nobody came to help him. But maybe these are his brothers. And so as the Ammonites began to engulf or engage in, 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 in warfare against Israel, the elders, maybe his brothers, they think to bring the toughest guy that they've ever heard of, the toughest guy in the land, the toughest, the meanest, the biggest, the best war machine in the land. Oh, what about, what about Jephthah? I hear he's become this, this cunning, uh, fearless warrior since being run out of town. And so they go after him. They go, they go to, to bring him in so that he can lead them. And they try to lure him in by appealing to his pride, saying, come be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. Come be our leader that we. Hmm. It's ironic that the criminals that Jephthah, by the way, had surrounded himself with are referred to as worthless men. Because these leaders of Gilead, whether they were his brothers or not, were worthless when Jephthah had needed their help. They did nothing to prevent his brothers, his family, 
from running him out of town. And so he sees right through what they say. He sees right through their, their ploy. And he calls them out on it. He basically says, the only reason you're coming to me is because you can't do it yourselves. You're, the only reason you're coming to me is because you're in trouble and you want somebody to save you. And you don't care who it is. Do you see the parallelism here? There's a parallelism. What was God's response in the previous chapter when the Israelites had initially come to God asking for help in their trouble? And so God called them out on their ploy, pointing out that they were only coming to ask him for help because they were in trouble and they knew it and they wanted somebody to serve them and they wanted somebody to save them. And they didn't really care who it was. And so here, Jephthah knows what God knew in the previous chapter. He knows that they wouldn't even be interested in having this discussion. They wouldn't be interested in talking to him if they weren't desperately in need of being rescued. They don't care about Jephthah here, just like they didn't initially care about God in the previous chapter. They only care about their own interests. They're only loyal to themselves. They don't want to serve the leader. They want somebody who's going to serve them. That's why they say that we may fight against the Ammonites. Well, if it's about we, why don't you guys go ahead? Instead of that you may lead us against the Ammonites big difference. And so this is a second physical picture of a spiritual reality that was also demonstrated in the previous chapter. Let's continue, verses 8 to 11. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the, leader, to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So unlike the people who are motivated by their own interests, who are motivated by power and influence and things like that. Jephthah is not at all driven or motivated by selfish ambition. He doesn't feel the need to, to immediately rush out there and demonstrate his strength or power. He's not trying to impress anybody. He doesn't care if he makes things right with these people if it's on their terms. And so for that reason, he refuses to be a means to the ends that they are seeking. He refuses to lead if they aren't fully committed to following him. So if he's going to do this, the people have to realize that he needs to be their leader, period. He needs to be their judge, the one that they will submit themselves to. Now I want us to see that all of the emotional hurt that you can imagine Jephthah had, it was probably ten times that. But all of this emotional hurt, all of the the turmoil that Jephthah has lived through has led him to this moment. And it's prepared him for this moment. Think about it. If he hadn't been cast out of his town by his own half-brothers and countrymen, 
He never would have had the opportunity to hone his skills on the battlefield. He never would have had the opportunity to display his skills out on the battlefield. He wouldn't have had the reputation that he had as this fierce warrior or crime boss. He needed these painful trials in his life. He needed to go through all these incredibly difficult circumstances to prepare him and to equip him for the purposes that God had in store for him. That's a different way of thinking it, isn't it? Thinking about it. And that's why I said several lessons back, we need to think about maybe if there's a trial that we're going through, maybe instead of asking God to just take it away, maybe we need to think about thanking God for our trials before we just pray that he takes them away. They're there for a reason. Those trials, those storms of life, you go through them for a reason. God has either caused it or God has allowed it. You know, we look at a storm when we're in the the midst of it and we can't imagine for the life of us how God is going to use it or why he would would maybe cause it or, or at least allow it. But what if, what if it's the spark? What if it's the catalyst that God has sovereignly and in his love ordained from eternity for the sake of opening the door to everything that God is calling you to do? What if it's part of your preparation for service. See, in God's kingdom, there are no coincidences. Nothing happens by accident. Even Jephthah, you know, the people, if they, if they were to, to tell you what they think of him, they'd say, oh, you know, this guy, his very existence is an accident. But it's not an accident if you put God into the equation. He's part of God's plan. See, in God's kingdom, there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as misfortune. If you're a child of God, there isn't one single thing that's ever happened to you that was a goof or or an oversight on God's part. There wasn't a time when he wasn't looking out for you, preparing you equipping you or a time when he you know was was more or less there, there's never been a time where he he was just asleep at the wheel never ever it's all happened it's all there because it's part of his plan for you we're talking about the god who takes chaos and turns it into order who allows sometimes causes and turns what might look like a disaster or a storm, into a personal strength. So instead of feeling like God has abandoned us in the storm, we have to understand that he is sovereign over every storm. It doesn't matter how big it is. It doesn't matter how painful it is. He's sovereign over it, and he's using it to prepare us for something. Even if we don't know what it is in the moment. He's using it to prepare us for what he has for us ahead at some point. So whenever you're suffering, whenever you're going through a trial, you know, what, whether, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's depression, or, or maybe it's something life-threatening like a disease. Maybe it's just rejection from your peers. Remember that God is sovereign over it. He's sovereign over every aspect of your life. He's sovereign over every situation. And he has promised that for his children, he's causing all things to work to their good, which is to become more like Jesus. 
He's got it all, all under control. And he's using your circumstances to do two things. Number one, to make you more like Jesus. And number two, to make you better equipped and prepared to serve him in the world. The psalmist writes this, Psalm chapter 139 Verses 13 and 16. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. Talking to God. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet, there was none of them. Now, a pagan religion... Or the world might tell you that maybe you know, your existence, your current existence, is just a, a continuation of consequences of, of previous experiences, previous existences in previous lives. Evolutionists will tell you that your existence is just an accident. All, all it is is a, a random collision of cosmic particles. And boom, order out of an accident. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a Porsche come out of, you know, a, a, a three or four car collision, you know, where, where all of a sudden, oh, wow, we've got three or four cars that came together. They're mangled, but look at this beautiful thing that they've all become. But the Bible clearly teaches that God created each of us and that he did so knowing all of our days in advance, knowing all of the steps that we would take in advance. He did so with a purpose in mind. He's sovereign over those purposes, and he is the one who will ensure that they come to pass. What that means is that no matter what you've done, no matter what your circumstances may be, God has a plan, and God has a purpose for each and every one of us. It doesn't matter what we've done or where we come from. Look at Jephthah. It doesn't matter where somebody comes from. God can use them. And just like Jephthah, you are who you are, and you've survived through what you've survived through because God has sovereignly ordained it as part of his plan. If Jephthah had been raised in comfort, if Jephthah had been raised in the riches of his father's home, if Jephthah had been raised in an easy environment where he was loved and accepted by absolutely everybody and was just comfortable with this world, he never would have been ready to take on this responsibility. You see, Jephthah was not raised up to be a judge in spite of his past. Rather, God has equipped him and prepared him for this moment through his past. And here he is. Here's Jephthah about to be the leader of the people, but before he accepts that responsibility, he does the same thing that God did in the previous chapter when God was insincerely and unrepentantly asked for help. He waits for them to ask with some humility, with some brokenness, with a willingness to follow him. Like the other judges that have come before him, Jephthah points us to Jesus Christ as the only one who can truly set us free. And just like the people could not have Jephthah as their leader without accepting his rule, we cannot experience Jesus' rescue in our lives if we refuse to accept and be obedient to his rule in our lives. That's part of the deal. 
And so with the people finally ready to follow his rule as their rescuer and their deliverer, Jephthah takes, uh, takes an oath before God and men to lead the nation. And immediately we see that he's, his experience has given him some, some, uh, some shrewdness, some wisdom, and he is a wise, wise negotiator. Verses 12 and 13, we read, Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land, from the Arnon to the Jabbok and now to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. So Jephthah, this this crime boss turned national leader, demonstrates some serious wisdom by not immediately just marching into war. He could have done that. You know, that's what the other side's doing. Instead, he first seeks a peaceful resolution to the conflict. He's, he's, trying to go, he's going after a discussion. He's going after a, a, a conversation as a means of, hopefully, avoiding warfare. How many of you know that before you go to war with someone, before you shun someone, before you, you engage in some type of conflict with someone, it's wise to try to talk it over first. Go to them. That's what Jesus says to do. Go to them privately, just one-on-one. Have a one-on-one conversation and try to work it out. As rough a character as Jephthah is, he's also rich in tact and wisdom. So he starts out by asking just a basic question. What's your problem with me? Yo, what's your beef with me? Huh? You know, what's, what's going on here? And the king claims that the land once belonged to the Ammonites. It did? Let's continue. Jephthah uh, again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they, also, and they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. Now you see why I had Kurt read out of 2 Corinthians. This is a little bit of a long passage with some some difficult names, but this is how Jephthah 
begins explaining the occupation of the land by Israel. He appeals to historical fact. He's appealing to truth. This is what happened. Let me open the history books and read it to you. He's appealing to truth. When Israel came up into the land from Egypt, the Edomites and the Moabites lived in the land that was south of the Arnon. Israel had requested permission to pass through. They were denied. When they were denied, they started going around that land, heading to the land owned by the the Edomites and the Moabites, and journeying toward the land that was now causing this, this controversy, but which at the time was being occupied inhabited by the Amorites, not the Ammonites, under King Sihon. But Jephthah reminds this king of the Ammonites that it was Sihon who initiated the war with Israel. They're the ones that threw down the glove. They're the ones that cast the first stone. And so Israel ended up winning the battle, and thus also they they won the land, which maybe helps explain why Jephthah wanted to seek a peaceful resolution to the conflict rather than immediately going into war because that was like throwing the dice on the table and just taking a bet, taking a gamble. But the point that he's making here is that the land has never, at least since their time coming into the land, the Ammonites have never, ever occupied this land for as long as Israel's been there. It's been owned by the Amorites, but they lost it fair and square. But just in case history and and fact and truth wasn't enough to convince the king to back off, Jephthah continues, verses 23 and 24, So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. See, Jephthah, he knew how these people think. He knew what their traditions were. He knew their their philosophy, their way of, of looking at the world. And it boiled down to this. What our gods give us is rightfully ours. Whatever our gods bless us with, whatever our gods do on our behalf is rightfully ours. He basically says, look, you get to keep what your God gives to you, So shouldn't we get to keep what our God gives to us? The only explanation for Israel's victories in war against stronger, larger, more experienced armies was that God was the one who had given the enemies into their hands. He's the one who had enabled them to defeat their enemies. It was God. So shouldn't they have the same right to take what their God gives them? That's his argument. Now people have two ways of understanding what Jephthah is doing here. Maybe he's saying this because uh, this is his philosophy. Maybe he, he believes that you know their God has given them this so they can have that, and our God has given us this so we can have this. Or maybe he's just saying this to be persuasive, knowing that that's the Ammonite worldview, that's their philosophy, and he's using their philosophy to his advantage. Now, I personally don't, necessarily fully believe that this is his personal philosophy. So in other words, I I don't believe that the first case is necessarily entirely true. But it is clear, especially as we go through the story, that Jephthah has syncretized his faith. That is, he has adapted some pagan 
philosophy into his own personal philosophy. He's melded together a little bit of pagan and, and biblical theology and philosophy. And as we saw earlier in this study, back in chapter 1 or 2, this syncretized faith is, at best, a weak and fragile faith. At worst, it is a false or dead faith. And so first, Jephthah used history to respond to the king of the Ammonites. Secondly, he appeals to their their philosophy, their theological beliefs and assumptions. And third, he's going to appeal to the precedence of their predecessors. Let's continue. Verses 25 to 27. He says, Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend with Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Oror and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the Judge, capital J, the Lord, the Judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Even the king of Moab, as harsh and as worldly as he might have been, he never sought to contend with Israel for the land which was north of the Arnon. And neither did the ancestors of the Ammonites because of respected laws. International laws is what you'd call it. So why are they making this claim? Why are the Ammonites making this claim and this push for the land now? Legally, it has never been theirs. Legally, it is currently the possession of the, of the Israelites. See, all of these arguments demonstrate that it was the king of the Ammonites who was clearly in the wrong. But here's a question. What happens almost every time that you present the best argument in the world to the most hard-hearted person you can find? It's almost... Impossible to change the mind of somebody who has their mind set on their ways and isn't interested in changing their mind. They're not interested in negotiating. They're not even interested in truth or morality or theology. They don't care. They want what they want. How many people get converted on the spot when they lose an argument to a Christian? None. Because it's God who converts. It's God who converts. All we can hope to do is pull up weeds and plant seeds and pray. We converse. He converts. So is it any surprise that the king of the Ammonites isn't affected? He's not swayed. He's, he's not, uh, yeah, not convinced. He doesn't care. Verse 28 says, but the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. No surprise. No surprise. He's got no interest in hearing what Jephthah has to say because he's got an agenda of his own. And truth is getting in the way of his agenda. There's no indication that the king replies or cares to hear. He didn't listen to the words that Jephthah sent. If it had been up to Jephthah, there would have been no war. There would be no conflict. It would have been resolved if it was squarely on Jephthah's shoulders. 
there would have been a peaceful resolution. And Jephthah uses the best and most honorable weapon that he had in his arsenal and at his disposal, truth. Truth. See, peace with others, especially in a cultural war. That's what's going on here. Peace with others must be sought. And the truth must always be spoken, seasoned with love and wisdom. Nevertheless, know this. We do know it, don't we? Peace does not always prevail. Do we know that? We know it. That's why Paul instructed the church in Rome. If possible, those are some key words, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible. That means it's not always possible. Paul knew as well as anyone that peace, while we could try to go for it, it doesn't always happen. But that's only because it takes two to tango. Living at peace with others doesn't depend entirely on us. The Lord knows that no matter how hard we try, no matter what we might do to try and make peace with others, it doesn't depend entirely on us. We can't be held responsible for how other people feel about us when somebody refuses to be at peace with us. And so it happens. Conflict happens even when we try to pursue peace. But it should never be because we didn't try to pursue peace with them. May that never be something that we can be rightfully accused of, not pursuing peace in the midst of conflict and escalating tension. And think of the poor ambassadors, the guys who had to deliver the message back and forth to this king who only wanted to be a fierce enemy to God's people. Here they were, they're coming before the enemy with a message. I'm sure that they're just hoping to leave with their life. But how many of you know that that's kind of a picture of you and me? Being that messenger, going back and forth. How many of you know that if you're a Christian, you're also an ambassador? Paul wrote this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 to 20, 17 to 20. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You catch that? We are ambassadors for Christ. We have been entrusted by him with the message of reconciliation. To whom? to those who aren't in right standing with God, to those who have sinned against him and they're unrepentant and there's no evidence of eternal or everlasting life in their life. They have no desire for God, but they need peace with him because they are making themselves enemies of God. And you know what? 
I bet that if you were to look back over the course of your life, through the trials, through the storms, through the good times, through the bad times, you'll see that God has equipped you and that he has prepared you through your life circumstances and through your life experiences to be his ambassador in one way or another. Maybe there's a way that you can relate to a a particular person or a particular group of people that other people can't relate to. Maybe there's a group of people who would be more willing to listen to somebody like you than they would be to listen to somebody like me. And maybe those who hear you will listen to you. It'll sink in. Or maybe in their hard-heartedness, they won't. That's not your responsibility. That's not what, what, how they respond. That's not determined by you. You're not responsible in any sense for that. It's between them and the one who made you an ambassador, the Lord Jesus. What can we do? We can be faithful to deliver the message that they need to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ, and we can pray. We can pray that God would give them eyes to see and ears to hear. See, this, this passage, this, this chapter is a picture of the world waging war against God's people. And God's people responding in a manner that demonstrates a desire to resolve things peaceably. There hasn't ever been a time in our nation's history when the war against Christians, when the war against God's people was stronger than it is now. And it's just getting stronger And so my prayer is that our nation would turn back to God and that Christians would once again be allowed to practice our faith freely and in peace. But that peace can't be a peace that requires Christians to compromise on biblical principles or on the practice of our faith. That would be a peace that is absent truth. Peace without truth is a false peace. Truth must be proclaimed, even if it's not received, even if it's not embraced, even if it's completely rejected, because we follow the judge, capital J, the rescuer, the deliverer, the son of God, who spoke the truth, and yet he was mocked. And he was beaten. And he was ultimately sentenced to die on a cross for it. For the truth. Jephthah imperfectly and Christ perfectly gave us examples of how to respond to false and unfair accusations with grace and with truth in the pursuit of peace. And so may we, as God's people, pursue peace, pursue it intentionally and deliberately with those who hate us, And who hate our God, who persecute us. And yet, may we remain steadfast in our convictions, faithful to seek peace and deliver the gospel message to those whom God has placed in our lives. Because through our life experiences, He's prepared us for it, He's equipped us to do it. All we need is a willingness to follow and obey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we 
are convicted by your word. And we know, Lord, that we haven't followed or obeyed perfectly. And we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for our sins. That you would teach us to be broken by those sins and to turn away from them. And God, as our nation becomes more and more hostile toward your word and your people, Lord, we ask, we beg, Lord, that you would turn this nation back to you. Lord, we stand by you and we will be obedient to you no matter what. We will follow you, even if it means practicing our faith underground in secret. But I pray, Lord, that your people would have a renewed sense of urgency to to share the gospel and to pursue peace in this cultural war in order that you would be glorified for the peace that that we have with with people who are your your enemies lord we ask lord that you would be glorified in our lives through our service to you in jesus name This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.